Hello, and welcome to Off the Shelf, a true crime book club podcast. Today, we will be discussing The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York. In the early 20th century, justice was an elusive thing for victims of poison. It was hard to detect, hard to prove, and hard to prosecute. And that was without the corruption that was rife within the police department and medical examiner's office. Newly appointed chief medical examiner Charles Norris and chemist Alexander Gettler set out to modernize criminology and use forensics to bring poisoners to justice. Author Deborah Blum outlines how these two men established the standards we all consider the norm in an age when they were fighting bureaucracy, ignorance, and an established government that valued tradition over progress. Joining me today are Jonathan Menguez and John Reese. And if you stick around after book club is over, we have an interview with the author herself. All right, welcome, gentlemen. Let's get started. John Reese, what did you think of the book? I often say that even though I'm interested in true crime, I'm not interested in true crimes, if that makes sense. Um, <laughs> Same. For me, for me um, I'm, I'm not interested in most true crime cases but i'm interested in like specific ones or ones of interest and stuff but one of the things i am quite interested in is the history of stuff like forensics um so this book being kind of like a history of toxicology and the medical examiner system in new york um and you know the difference in america between the medical examiners and the coroners and stuff which i only learned about about a year or two back you know that the it varies from state to state and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. It was an interesting book for me. Uh, the setting as well with Prohibition, um, it's that, like, romantic, jazz era, what well, says jazz era, doesn't it, on the cover, um, setting, you know, very um, boardwalk empire-y and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Jonathan? Um, I enjoyed it as well. I can see how this would be right up John Reese's alley too, now that he mentioned it, um, because I didn't, I do know he's interested in that kind of background detective stuff. I, I really liked the um, setting as well. So much history of New York was included in, in the chapters, the Tammany Hall stuff and, you know, the political infighting and, but yeah, um, I, I, I enjoyed how he, each chapter covered a different case or a different poison, sometimes, numerous cases sometimes in the same, in the same chapter. And, uh, you know, the characters were really fleshed out. The Charles Norris and Gellert, is that his name? I think it was Gettler. Am I wrong Gettler. on that? Gettler. Right. Yeah, and I'm very mm-hmm. bad with names, so that could be. Yeah, I agree with both of you. I actually, this might be one of the highest rated ones so far for me in terms of of everything. Like I found it very educational. I thought it was really well written. Um, Very minor complaints in terms of like the writing and just, I found it really entertaining. And I thought it was interesting how the sort of like the one poison that she kept as a through line throughout the entire book was alcohol and the prohibition and how, you know, the government itself was poisoning people to try to get them to stop drinking, which is like a fruitless endeavor. If And, and it's interesting to me too, because like, as I'm reading this, I kept drawing parallels with modern life right now, you know, with prohibition and the war on drugs with, um, various things that they were saying about how science wasn't considered 
worthwhile in the pursuit of truth, justice, and and all of that. And I found it really interesting, like the one case where the the coroner, the medical examiner said, no, this was not murder. This was carbon monoxide poisoning. And the police went ahead and charged the guy with murder anyway. It's interesting to me, the parallels that I was drawing throughout this whole thing. And and I thought, but yeah, I really enjoyed the book. Like, did you guys have a favorite part of it? Like the favorite poisoning? Because I kind of had a couple where I was like, oh, that's, that's kind of interesting. I, I did quite like, I find it interesting, like you said, the alcohol uh, thing, you know, the, the prohibition, the government putting um, the poisons in alcohol, trying to discourage people from drinking them, which, you know, wasn't effective at all. But the uh, the radium, I, I found interesting with the uh, the watch painter girls. And there's, there's it's also very kind of like anti-corporation. There's an anti-corporation uh, theme in the book, isn't it, about how the corporations are getting away with poisoning people, um, either their workers or their customers and stuff like that, and loopholes and, and things like that. But yeah, just the, just the um, thing of them being encouraged with, you know, radioactive paintbrushes in their mouths, you know, and... Uh, Which still holds true today. It's not like corporations are any different. Like, the bottom line well, is the bottom line, you know? Yeah, Jonathan? I like that. I liked that as well. Um, the Standard Oil and DuPont, I think it, there was a lead poisoning, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, but I, I liked um, the um, Shelbourne restaurant and bakery pie oh, yeah. um, arsenic poisoning, even mm. though the, the case isn't what went unsolved. Um, something about and maybe it's just because we j- just finished salmon sandwiches and I don't know, but there's something about like um, the mass poisoning of customers and then the the employees of the restaurant started eating the leftover pie that I just find um, really crazy. You know, there's, it's one thing for like a daughter to decide to start poisoning her family members in order to get an inheritance, you know, there's a motive you understand. Right. But, but for someone to just put arsenic in pie crust and just randomly poison dozens of people. Like you remember the scene where everyone in the office building ate pie. And so the doctors were having to go from floor to floor up and down this building, finding people collapsed on the floor. And then, oh no, here's another one. And here's another one all on on different floors of this office building. I had never, I wasn't even aware of that case. And I wonder if I mean, none of you had really heard of any of these cases that she covered. And had you? I had heard of the radium poisonings of the watch dial girls. Like I knew about that one. And but it was interesting to me how many like off tangents I went into in researching because of of not just regular cases, but um, little lines that she would throw in there about when he was doing his work at the medical examiner's office that I'd never really considered before. Um, Like one of the ones that I was like, not that this has anything to do with current politics in America for any reason I could think of, but where she talked about how just like how many dead babies were in the morgue and then it was and then like later on there was another and I'm like okay well SIDS infant death lots of high infant mortality but there was a line in there where she sort of had talked about later about just like people would abandon their children on the street to die I knew that happened like way back in ancient times there's a word for it and I can't think of what it's called right now but if you had an unwanted infant you would leave it out and to die of exposure. But I hadn't really considered that, that this was still going on until 
100 years ago here in America, the idea that people would find themselves with an unwanted infant and just leave it out for to, to, to die of exposure, which sent me off down a little research rabbit hole of, of huh? Yeah. And uh, I also enjoyed the, um, the whole background um, of Bellevue Hospital, yes. um, which is a pretty not- notorious place in the United States. But but um, I didn't really know that much about its background. And um, at the beginning of the book, when she's talking about the Germans' use of mustard gas in World War I and how this culture, this, po- this, this idea that, that poison was so prevalent in society because of the war. And then at the same time, they were at, like you were talking about bodies second. She goes into the Spanish flu pandemic and how just like corpses are piling up everywhere and in the morgue and um people yeah, wearing was, masks and think, you know yeah, there whole, was a line in there where it was a misdemeanor to cough with your some like cough uncovered i think she called it unguarded or something where it was, yeah. it was considered a crime to cough with your without covering up your mouth and i was like let's bring that back exactly that's (laughs) that was my exact thought too you know children wearing cheesecloth masks to school and things like that yeah it it was really interesting given covid times so there are so many parallels to modern life and it's it's amazing to me to think that this happened a hundred years ago and it's still i mean we still you know you like you read about these people who are drinking like radium health shakes and you're like, oh, what a bunch of idiots. And then you go online and how many like supplements for you don't even know what are being advertised to you for drink this, you know, try this supplement, do this thing. And it's like, yeah, we're, we're not really different. And we haven't gotten any smarter as, as time has gone on. It's just we changed what poison we're willingly ingesting in terms of health or the new thing. It goes back as well to the... Um the poisons and the health things and stuff like that is I know in the UK there's a lot of questions at the moment about the use of e-cigarettes particularly the flavoring for them mm-hmm. um, because there's very little regulation on what goes into that um, there's even talks about banning them even though they have dramatically reduced the amount of smoking but uh, yeah so it's I, th- I think I think it's a question of trust isn't it you trust but the people who put out these products are responsible and, you know, you, you actually you believe what they say or you believe the doctor that recommends them and, and stuff like that. And nowadays there is a lot more regulation of things, but one of the themes in the book seemed to be as well, the fact that the, the government didn't want to regulate things because it was, you know, because the depression and because it was anti-business and stuff like that. And yeah, let's just poison our consumers instead much better for business which again goes back to covid doesn't it you know business versus health and stuff like that it's yeah i wouldn't consider myself like a, a socialist or or even a capitalist but it is very interesting how deluded i find people when you when you place your trust in a corporation that's owned by shareholders who are responsible not to you the consumer but to their shareholders and you're going to decide that this is where I'm going to place my trust post to scientists who have hopefully no, uh, you know, objective gain from giving clear analysis on, on the facts of whether something is good or bad. 
uh, it's interesting. People are weird. And it's it, it, to me, this was mostly interesting for me, as I said, as I was going through every chapter, I was like, oh, yeah, we, we, haven't, we haven't learned. We haven't changed. We are no smarter. It's, it's all the same. Okay, so I, I loved all the social history of the book, you know, but I kind of struggled during the science part of the book. And maybe that's just because, you know, I'm a liberal arts student and <laughs> science is not my particular forte. But the author is obviously an expert on these chemicals. And the parts that I kind of got confused in were the explanations of exactly how they detected poisons in organs and things, you know, the cutting down of the, like uh, when uh, they would be inject, injecting animals or something or to test um, to be able to make the detection of the drug so then they can possibly detect it in humans, you know. I've all, I'm always, whenever I, I start reading about cutting up segments of organs and boiling them down and doing this and doing that and trying to detect the, you know, white specks or whatever it is, that part, those parts of the book just always, if any book will just always kind of sail over my head. Um, maybe it's because it's just a, such a different world um, that I don't know anything about that it can, it gets confusing, you know, but even, we'll see, I, I wasn't a science major either. I'm not a huge science person, but you basically managed to reproduce what she said. So it was obviously put across in a, in a fairly easy enough manner because you pretty much had it there. I mean, like, right. you, 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 got the, you got the gist. It wasn't, like, I, I found this a lot easier to read and understand than, than the poisoning aspects of some of the other books I've read. I thought she did a really good job of sort of very... I don't want to say teacher-like because that makes it sound sort of like she is lecturing, which she isn't, but sort of dumbing it down enough for my non-science brain to, to, to get what was happening without struggling much. Making it accessible. to the Making it reader. accessible. Yes. Thank you. It's too early over here. You've had time to wake up. I'm still, I haven't even had a full cup of coffee yet, but yeah, she did. I thought she made, I thought she did a good job of making it accessible other than, you know, when I found out that uh, Gettler was using dogs, of course, my, uh, <gasps> you use dogs, which is purely, a, you know, don't ever hurt the dog in a, I don't approve of that, but. I know what you mean. When I was reading about the dogs and the cats, he was experimenting. And I, 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 had my, I had my little dog stripe next to me. Yes. And I was like, I would let someone experiment on you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm not normally, I'm. I am, I am, I'm, I'm someone who accepts the necessity of experimenting on animals in certain cases, not for cosmetics, right. uh, but for like, um, medication and that, that type of thing. Um, but I think you're more used to reading about it happening in, in rats mm-hmm. um, or mice or maybe even like, you know, pigs, because there's this similarity between pigs and humans in the terms of the, 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 um, muscle musculature and stuff like that right. um it, it really, with dogs and cats and stuff like that it's it, you know oh. 
which is purely like, oh, I don't care if they torture these animals, but don't torture my babies. But her Pulitzer was actually one based on research she did discussing the actual uh, issue of experimenting on animals with primates. Like that's what the author won a Pulitzer for a series that she did about different labs that experiment on primates for animal for research purposes. And uh, I, I, I might actually go read that at some point that might be like next up on my list, but I don't like, I don't like reading about it. It's one of those things where I, I purely aware I'm a hypocrite. It's not like, I don't know yeah. it's happening. It's not like I don't know, but it's one of those things I really want to just like close my eyes, close the blinds, pretend it's not happening and live in my nice little happy world of, I want to have blissful ignorance on this subject, which I, I'm yes. reading about the murder of humans and like, Oh, that's fine. <gasps> you killed a puppy. <laughs> I know, uh, but it's true. Like dogs don't deserve it anyway. Sorry. Tangent. I agree. I, I agree. I had the exact same feelings. Completely blase to the merger of the humans, the, the, the animals being experimented on, you know, particularly the, the dogs. I was like, Ooh. see, it's that's, that's, that says something. I don't know what it says. But... All right. So, okay. Other things. The Oddfellows home one, where he, uh, that was a weird one. The nurse at the Oddfellows home, who was kind of with chloroform, getting rid of the, a lot of the near-death elderly patients. Was that Moore's? Is that how Yeah, it was one of the first ones um, in the book, where... um, I guess he just uh, up and disappeared or something like that, didn't he? Or Because they didn't believe him. They were like, no. Yeah, that- he confessed. That's right. Yeah, he walks into the police station and confesses and they don't believe him. Yeah, that was uh, that was a wild one. The chloroform one was uh, was pretty interesting because you always hear that. And, and in the Ripper case, too, I think it's been posited that maybe... Uh, Jack the Ripper might have used chloroform to uh, to disable his victims, but yeah, uh, that one where this early, you know, I'm sure it happened all the time, but you know that that's some what's it called uh, when when a nurse like mass murders um, people in it's um, like Angel of Death or something. Death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, I think it depends on what the motive is, isn't it? If it's it's an Angel of Death, if it's trying to stop them from suffering or something like that, and then it's um, you know, it's more like a doctor death thing if it's like a Harold Shipman type uh, type case where it's just a power or financially motivated. Or yeah, this uh-huh. was more of a doctor death sitch, though. Mm-hmm. I think because yeah. I mean they were basically saying they were trying to clear up beds and and well, and it, and it appear appears that he was uh, you know just following orders. That was his story, and is that the superintendent or whatever of the uh, Oddfellows home, you know told him that he would have to do this. It's interesting to me to think about how many murders occurred by a poison and how as a means of murder, it has completely fallen off. Do you know what I'm saying? Like you never hear nowadays, you don't hear about poisoning deaths. It was so ubiquitous back then. Like so many different kinds of poisons, so many different ways of poisoning. It was, it was like the weapon of choice. And now when was the last poisoning murder that you can really remember reading about where someone was murdered via poison? And I'm wondering, like, what was the cultural shift that occurred that... I think it's, it's, it's probably two things. It's, it's A, 
better regulation of poisons, poisonous substances. Um, you know, you can't just walk into a chemist and buy arsenic anymore. And B, it's probably because you know they're more easy to detect scientifically. Stuff like this book where they develop tests in order to detect them in bodies. Well, then um, that would that whole better regulation of the of the substance would put pay to the gun lobby's argument of it's not guns that kill people, <laughs> it's people who kill people. <laughs> like if we can ban and regulate the poisons and take out all those poisoning deaths, nothing to stop. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like anymore, you don't you don't hear of obviously if if the poison goes undetected, then you don't hear about it. Um yeah. because the person would get away with it the kind of poisoning cases we we kind of hear about these days are the ones that are um, immediate pretty immediately detected like the tylenol poisonings you know folks sending ricin to you know politicians through the mail you know it's this it's this type of murderer that knows the chemical is going to be detected eventually yeah. with the Tylenol yeah. poisonings that went on for a little while. Um, but it, but More um, the terrorist thing that was that yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, but that bakery, that big pie shop case, that, that counts as terrorism for me. Absolutely. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of the, um, uh, the food tampering cases in the UK where, um, Police were getting or supermarkets were getting letters saying that someone had gone into the supermarket and tampered with this food and stuff like that, and uh, you know that, that's when they started putting everything in tamper-proof jars, yeah, uh, packaging and stuff like that because you know there's no way to detect if they had or not baby food they were targeting or something like that. And the yeah, other and in the in the United uh, States, you know, there's there's this uh, every Halloween you have these warnings parents test the candy before your kids do and look for little pinpricks in the packaging you know because there's this fear that you know there is some invisible mass poisoner out there poisoning all of the children's halloween candy which i don't think there's ever been any cases of that actually happening but this uh you know, poisoned Halloween candy thing is is a um, boogeyman myth that you know yeah. is kind of in our, in our culture now. Yeah, it, it's urban legend, like the thing of people putting you know hiding HIV infected needles in seats in cinemas and right, right, uh, and things like that. You know, it's it, it's it's an urban legend, a boogeyman type thing. Um, go back to saying, but the last poisoning cases. Thing we've heard about. I think the only time it really happens now is like we said, doctors and nurses, um, angels of death and stuff like that, where they either administer, you know, something like morphine or over administer mm-hmm. morphine, you know, because in the UK, Harold Shipman, um, a few years ago, who killed hundreds and hundreds of elderly patients by, you know, morphine and uh, and other substances. You yeah. get your occasional cult murderers, you know. Oh, that's who, right, the Jones. I didn't even think um, about them. Yeah, the, Kool-Aid. Yeah, and the um, Heaven's Gate called out in San Diego. Yeah, drink the Kool-Aid. What is Kool-Aid? You guys mm. don't have Kool-Aid? We don't it's have a, Kool-Aid. It's like a packet of like crystal we, flavors you and you put it, it in water. Different, and it I makes believe. like a juice drink that has no juice in it, but it makes, let me rephrase that. It makes a sweetened, colorful beverage <laughs> for Just children. Just crystals that you dissolve in water. Yeah, it's like a little packet of flavor crystals uh, and mm. it's got like sugar and like grape flavored 
crystals and then you put it in water and you mix it up and it makes like a a drink Don't like you guys have like ribena or something like that where it's like yeah, a concentrated well, flavoring thing yeah, 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 a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah. into yeah. water and then it makes a juice drink kind of a thing it's like that yeah. except it's in it's been de what do you call it de suck the water out dehydrated de thank you I told you I haven't had coffee yet. It's been dehydrated a little. It's 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 in a flavor yeah. crystal packet. And you yeah. put it in and it and it makes up. There is no redeeming yeah. nutritional value. It has it, yeah. it's not come close to a fruit, but they're all named after things like grape or strawberry or watermelon yeah. or whatever. But it, it it hasn't even been waved in the direction of an actual fruit product. Yeah. It's very weird that that Kool-Aid has it crossed the Atlantic and into the uk isn't it you would think that it would be one of those things because um it's like iconic um maybe may, may, it's like maybe it's like come and gone it had its it, time but everybody recognized that it's god awful yeah. and they yeeted I mean, it from the shelves right quick that's a market ready for us to exploit a simple answer to that in london you go to oxford street where now all of those um uh, you know, shops that used to sell tatty London merchandise now all sell American candy and American foodstuffs, uh, which no one ever buys um, because, and they, they only stay open because they're basically money laundering fronts um, for um, the, possibly the Russian mafia, but you know. It's... <laughs> so they're like, what are the, the vacuum repair shops of, or the VCR repair shops in America, which everybody's like, yeah, yeah that's a front. Like, yeah, yeah, it's like who's Oxford Street in London, you know, the, the, the most, the busiest shopping street in the UK. Um, every four or five shops, there used to be like a, a souvenir shop that used to sell tack of London or the Queen or Paddington Bear on, or, you know, and random suitcases and stuff like that. They've now all converted into American candy stores and American food stores where all the tourists go and look in them and stuff like that, but no one ever seems to buy anything. And they're basically just money laundering fronts is the, is the general theory. Well, I think if Ali and I started like shipping you cases of Kool-Aid, you could uh, start up a pretty good uh, little side business there. I probably could, yeah. I'm good, legitimately going to send you some Kool-Aid just so you know what this is. <laughs> you, you're, try it. When you say drinking the Kool-Aid, you'll, you'll know what it is. Yeah. It's horrible. Like, if you're going to kill somebody, give them a better drink than Kool-Aid. Uh, so back to the book. So. Yes, there's a book, isn't there? What is it? What were we talking about? One of the things I did find interesting in the book, which is, I, and I know, like, in theory, I know it's still going on today. Did you ever realize how easy in certain places in, in the country it would be to, like, kill people and get away with it because they don't have a medical examiner as their coroner? Like, even yeah. still today, like, coroners can be elected postal workers, you know? They're, yeah, they don't I attend I, 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 I the virtual crime con, um, you know, the, the big crime con thing. I, I won tickets to their virtual one they did, I think, when the lockdowns. Um, and there was a talk on the the medical examiner system versus the coroner system um in the uk it's just fascinating just that that, that is possible but, you know america elects everything though do you elect people to like you know to be to like school boards and ptas and dog catchers and stuff like that you? part of it is is like like a lot of people like we're we're a huge country 
And we are spread out to a ridiculous degree. So if you look at some of these little places, there's 200 people living in the town. How could you possibly have a coroner? You know, how could you possibly have somebody reputable? They probably have to travel 100 miles to go to a doctor or, or, or to anything because they're out in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, like I love how people talk about uh, socialist medicine and, oh, the wait times or whatever. And then my friends who have moved to, to places that aren't as, because I come from big cities. I've mostly lived in big cities all my life or big city adjacent. And then they move to these sort of like obscure places out in the middle of nowhere and realize that we're living in America. We're technically a first world country, but we're some of these places are third world. They don't have. Uh, you're going to wait a month for a doctor's appointment for really important stuff. You're going to wait six weeks and they're used to having it instantaneous access because they're used to coming from big cities where we have everything. And then they move out to these sort of far flung obscure places. And it's like, no, your, your autopsy is going to be done by a vet if you're lucky. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, it's because it came from the UK, isn't it? It came from England and Wales, where it used to be elected. It used to be like knights, um, a nobleman to be elected to the position. And it, it comes from the sheriff system or something, doesn't it? But then parts of America have modernised, parts haven't. Um, I know in the UK, I think it was 1887, they basically decided that it had to be either a doctor or a solicitor. Um, or barrister, and now a coroner in the UK has to be either a solicitor or barrister. They're basically a judge, and then they just appoint people to do the autopsies and stuff like that. And- Infrastructure in America is is kind of a... It really is dependent upon where in America you live, because you can have excellent infrastructure with every modern amenity, and, and you could be living in the backwoods where the banjos are playing, and you've got nothing. I mean, I think it's the same in, in pretty much every country, though, isn't it? You know, it's the the cities have got infrastructure and the rural areas haven't. Um, I mean, I know geographically it's much smaller, but, for example, in Wales, you know, I live five miles from my near, nearest accident and emergency uh, centre, but if I lived, you know, slightly further west, there wouldn't be one for, like, 50 miles. It's... Uh, yeah. And it's interesting to think, too, like how uh, how rife for corruption that is that like, you know, and she talked about it in the book a little bit with Tammany Hall and everything like that, where how you could just pay off somebody and be like, no, give me give me the death certificate I want. And there you go. And I'm sure that happens more than we know nowadays. Like, oh, no, my husband, he died of a heart attack. We don't just we don't need yeah. to do that. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of coroners tend to be undertakers as well, don't they, in the, in the more rural areas of America that have got the ME system and things like that. Yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a research rabbit hole I started going down but didn't really follow it up because, like I said, this book did send me down a lot of little different yeah. side streets where I'm like, oh, I want to I research that. I want to research that. And I did sort of start researching the coroner medical examiner situation in America, but I haven't gotten really far into it. But yeah, yeah I found this book. Like I said, I really did enjoy this book. Like I thought it was any book that makes me think and any book that makes me sends me off chasing some rabbit somewhere of another research avenue, I always find to be a good book. It, it, it definitely sparked a lot of uh, conversational monologue in my own head of like, oh, that's interesting. I want to I want to I want to learn more about that. Yeah. Going back to what we were saying, what we were saying earlier about kind of like how um, the there's also like a rich and poor divide in the book, isn't there, about how, um, mm. you know, the 
the workers are being poisoned by the corporations and stuff like that. The speakeasies as well, the rich mm-hmm. and poor divide between them, where the um, you know the the poor people, the workers, uh, you know, being poisoned by the alcohol, whereas the rich ones can kind of get hold of booze that wasn't as bad. You know, it's, it's not going to totally kill you or blind you. you no, know, immediately, it's. Uh, well, and that's part of the problem because it's not until the rich people start suffering equally that anything is going to change in society. You know, that's always been how it is. As long as the upper echelons are fine, there's no real motivation for change until like the problem becomes so overwhelming that there is no no choice but to do it. And I think like yeah. if, if it were just a bunch of poor drunks being killed by alcohol, we would probably still be living under prohibition in in this country, probably, because we still are with like drug addicts and people just basically look at it and they say, oh, you know, drug addicts. So if they kill themselves, who cares? But if all the drug gangs started doing what they were doing in prohibition and the drug gangs were just shooting up, you know, and that kind of thing started getting out of hand to a degree where it wasn't contained, then I think we would, we there would be some like, okay, Let's let's re-examine this. Are there still some like towns or counties in some states like Tennessee, which are still like dry? Mm-hmm. Exist? It's like isn't isn't like where Jack Daniels Distillery is based is a dry county, so you can't actually drink um, in the distillery or something like that, isn't it? Or... I actually don't know about that. I do know that there are dry counties, and I know that there are dry days as well, even in non-dry counties. I lived in a county where it was illegal to buy alcohol on a Sunday. And I went grocery shopping and I wanted, I wanted to buy, it wasn't even, I wasn't even buying wine to drink. I wanted to buy like a bottle of wine to make a chicken dish that required white wine. And so I went to the grocery store to buy a bottle of wine to make this chicken dish and they wouldn't sell it to me. And I was like, uh, it blew my mind. Like I'm living in 2000, it was two, it was 2010 or whatever, when this was happening. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, uh, what am I, 12? Like, sell me the damn wine. And yeah. they're like, Can't, yeah, well, in Kansas, uh, Kansas is pretty much where prohibition started with uh, Carrie Nation running around with her hatchet, busting up the saloons and stuff. Uh, up until just about 10, 15 years ago, you still couldn't buy alcohol on Sundays in Kansas. Yeah. Um, and in a lot of places, you can't. I think, And I think there are still some dry counties in Kansas. And another thing about talking about the divide between the rich and poor, well, for many years, um, in order to go into a bar, you had to be a member of a club. So you could pay membership to a club and go in to drink. So if you had money, you could drink. Um, but if you were poor, then you could uh, because you would have to actually be a paying member of a club to be able to go in and drink. Once they started to loosen up the laws after prohibition was abolished, a lot of places in Kansas particularly kept a lot of those laws on the books. But then they started to loosen the laws. And this wasn't until like maybe in the 70s or 80s. I mean, so we're talking about 50 years after prohibition was abolished federally it was still in place in the state of kansas oh but the rules were only loosened for those who could afford to pay memberships to private clubs and things well i mean it's the same thing now it's not like millionaires are going to jail for cocaine possession you know they all have it they're all doing it but they're not going to jail for cocaine possession it's the poor dude on the street 
that he's going to jail. Not it's it's the same thing. Things are only illegal for poor people. Rich people get away with yeah. it all the time. Yeah. yeah, we were seeing that a lot in the UK at the moment as well, uh, because of the um uh, during during the COVID lockdowns, um, it turns out the government and the ministers were having parties. Um, and drinking sessions uh, in Downing Street, and they've just got going fifty quid fines. Um, you know, a, a fine is just a it's just a cost to do something, isn't it? If you're rich, you know, you can you can mm-hmm. pay a fine and just carry on and stuff like that. Um, I was going to say the um, in the UK, the only restrictions we've had in recent years really was uh, licensing hours, so you couldn't buy alcohol um, in supermarkets after like ten o'clock at night. Um, and before like 12 o'clock midday, I think. So the, the, the aisles and supermarkets that sold, sold the booze would be restricted off um, outside licensing hours. Now, nowadays, um, most supermarkets, you know, you can buy it any time uh, because they've done got 24 hour, as long as they've got license to sell it that time. It's now 24 hours. Um, I will say UK has quite like a drinking culture kind of a thing that I don't think we yeah. have here in the States. And I'm wondering if it's be like, I'm just sitting here and I'm totally talking out of like, like this is just popping into my head now, but I'm wondering if prohibition sort of like scared us to the point where we were like, we have to keep this contained so that yeah, we don't I mean, lose it. Whereas like UK's drinking culture is far different, I think, than American in terms of like. It is. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, um, various people have tried to encourage like a, a cafe culture like you have in France or in Italy where people, you know, will have a drink of a meal, but they don't go they get completely rat assed every time they have a drink. But in the UK, it's almost encouraged you know, to binge drink, to get rat ass, to completely, you know, you know, you can't just have one or two, you've got to have like 20 or something, you know. But we, we, we haven't had full prohibition, but there used to be like restrictions in local bylaws. Um, so, for example, uh, Swansea, uh, the nearest city to me, there was a local bylaw that said on a Sunday, you could only buy alcohol if you had walked more than a mile. <laughs> yeah. So you can see this is going, can't you? Um, so there's two towns, um, the Swansea City, and there's a small like seaside town called Mumbles, which is about um, three miles away from Swansea. Um, so basically, and they set up a... there, 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 there used to be what was called the Mumbles Mile. So there would be a mile of pubs pretty much every other building. There were like 20 pubs or something like that. And the people from Swansea would walk to the Mumbles end of the Mumbles Mile and then have a drink in each pub on the way back. And the people from Mumbles walk the Swansea end of the Mumbles Mile and then have a drink in each one on the way back. Um, so, <laughs> I think the, 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 the United States has this religious, moralist, you know, with the temperance movement and, and moral policing and, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the culture in the United States is much more um, dominated by these uh, hyper-moralist religious groups who have much more power, where the UK is more progressive in that way. I mean, you guys are ahead of us in in a number of, you know, causes and beliefs that are handicapped in the United States due to the influence of these right-wing religious moral moral police. And it's not yeah, just no, alcohol I, and the drugs, UK, but in, the, in, the, in the UK, in, pro, in the times you know you had prohibition like the 1920s, there were similar groups in the UK um, and, and before that and stuff. So I know my great grandmother was very much part of the temperance movement. So I, I, I don't, I, 
I wonder if it could be a cultural thing that comes from the top. So, for example, co- the House, you know, Congress in America, does it have any bars on the premises? Yeah. The Houses of Parliament in the UK has got, I think, three or four bars in the building and cheapest drinks in London because they're subsidised as well. Yeah, no, I don't we don't have I don't think we have bars inside our actual Congress building that are I mean, they have like social clubs for your party and everybody has a drinks cabinet in their office kind of a thing. But like an actual like, I don't know, that's a, that, huh? Yeah, yeah, no, no. there are actual, actual bars um, in the House of Parliament. I think it's three or four of them. And as well as that, the, the booze is the cheapest you can get in London because it, it's subsidised by the taxpayer as well. Wow. Okay, yeah. yeah. That could be why we've got a drinking culture in the UK, perhaps. Slightly. Maybe. You know, and, you know, you know, if you look at... Um, you know, downing, you know, downing Street during the COVID, um, everyone seemed to be pissed off there heads all the time they were sending people suitcases out to the local supermarket to get alcohol and stuff like that on the friday night for a party and yeah well and it's interesting too because it's not like i disagree on its premise that alcohol is poison like there isn't any real need to drink alcohol in terms of like it's you know it doesn't hydrate you so it does the opposite it's one of those things where it, it I would agree that it's poison, but I'm also of, of the opinion, much like with heroin or cocaine or meth or anything else, if you want to poison your own self, feel free. Like, it's none of my business. What you do with yourself is your own business. So I've never understood the, like, if you want to drink Drano, well, no kids, don't drink Drano. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like you need it's a pod. Oh, my Lord. But it's interesting, like, the kinds of poison we try to regulate in terms of, like, public health like how many alcoholics how many drunk drivers how many etc etc so it's like the difference in how do you manage a public health crisis and what do you consider to actually be a public health crisis kind of a thing you know i think it comes down to it comes down to what you can tax Mm, you can tax anything you can tax alcohol you can tax tobacco but it's more difficult to tax marijuana because anyone can grow a, a wheat plant I mean, you just have to make it legal. Once you make it legal, you can tax it. You can tax heroin. Just make it legal. You make it legal. You have a CVS selling your little packet of, I don't, I don't know how to do heroin. You can tell I'm, I'm sadly deficient in my drug knowledge. How does heroin come? Heroin's injected. I, I, I believe what they do is, I believe um, uh, they, they heat it. And then it gets injected then, I think. Well, I can tax yeah. the needles. I can tax the lighter. I can tax the, I mean. I know because I've watched train spotting. Yeah, it's similar to making Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> well, you but, can cut out some of the Kool-Aid leave parts of it in. But I mean, you could. You could totally, you could tax cocaine. You could tax it all. I mean, they sell drugs in CVS right now. They sell nicotine. They sell alcohol. Sell a little packet of heroin. 21 and over. Well, cocaine used to be legal and sold, didn't it? And and well, morphine, heroin, isn't it? It's morphine. Yes. Yeah. You know, if cocaine used to be in Coca Cola, didn't it? So, um, final thoughts on the book and your out of five star ratings. Let's start with John Reese. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. Um, I I really enjoyed the setting. Uh, I really enjoyed the structure of it, um, with focusing on individual 
poisons and interesting cases and then the forensic developments. Um, as Jonathan said, the, the characters really came to life, uh, particularly the two main, you know, the medical examiner and the toxicologist. The, the thread of, in the background of prohibition and alcohol, um, and that, that has been the, the most you know, severe poison and stuff was uh, really, really uh, added something as well. Um, and I would definitely recommend it. And out of five, I am going to give it four and a half. Jonathan, what, what about you? I agree with everything that John Reese said. And I would have given it a four and a half as well. But I, I'm only going to knock it a half a star since I guess three is now the mean because I've given up on fighting this battle. Um <laughs> I'm just too old and tired to have uh, conceded defeat on this, that one. Um, I agree with everything that John Reese had to say. I really liked the social history of New York, uh, learning about all these cases that I had never heard of before. The science was a little bit over my head, but I did find all the cases really interesting. Um, so um, I don't think that um, I would give it a four and a half stars but I'll go ahead and give it a solid four stars. I really enjoyed this book. I did like the science of it. I liked the history of it. I liked the many, many tangents that it sent my brain down um, and other avenues of research that it fostered in me. I thought the writing was really good other than every now and again, there was a simile I wasn't a fan of, but other than that, I thought it was very clear, very simple, but very effective writing. Um, and I am very close to giving this book five stars because I did enjoy it to that degree. I'm going to knock it off a 0.25 for the simile issue. So I'm going to say 4.75 is my final, uh, determination of it because I actually like, I, I did enjoy this one quite a lot. And I thought it, uh, again, I like books that make me think and give me more to think about and send me somewhere else to do more research after the fact. Those are always the best books for me. And I think this uh, fit the bill nicely while also being a fully entertaining story in and of itself. So uh, I think I'm coming down at 4.75 for this one for me. So is this our last poisoning book, right? We can move on. Yes, this is the end of the poisoning chapter of Off the Shelf. And now we can just move on to Bloody Murder. But before we close the book on poisonings, we have an interview with the Pulitzer Prize winning author, Deborah Blum, who is joining me now. Hello. Yeah, hi, how are you? Hi. So, Deborah, what inspired you to write this book? What was your what was your key interest that drove you into researching and writing about this topic? So it was kind of a combination of two things. I'm a failed chemistry major, as I'm forever. That's just my favorite description of myself. But I started out as a chemistry major. Uh, and I say failed because I was a complete daydreaming klutz in the lab. I set my hair on fire. That was exciting. I uh, They had to evacuate my freshman chemistry laboratory because I accidentally generated a poisonous cloud. Also exciting. <laughs> I literally thought to myself, I cannot, I love chemistry, but I cannot do this because eventually someone's going to be dead and it might be me. And so I kind of meandered off into, well, I like to write, I'll go into journalism. And then I turned out to love journalism, right? Um, And so fast forwarding through a whole lot of stuff, when I first started writing books, 
I still had that deep love of chemistry. And I also had grown up reading murder mysteries, right? My mother was a major murder mystery reader. And so I grew up with Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and all the old classics. So I had done a couple of books and I kept saying to my agent, I want to do a book in which poisons are characters because, and, and you really will see some of this in Poisoner's Handbook. They're such amazingly devious, wonderfully tricky chemical compounds. The way they fool the body, the way that they can be used by bad people in a very devious, surreptitious way. And so Finally, I had just written a book about ghost hunting, it, which was a non, it was a nonfiction book about the search for life after death in the early 20th century. And she was just like, okay, let's get this over with. Write that poison bottle book you've been talking about for years. And I'm like, yes. And so I this is so this is a very long answer. So that was really what got me going. I had, had this idea about a book in which poisons were characters for a long time that was kind of a mix of crime and chemistry. And and if you and Poisoner's Handbook is really organized by poisons, right? So it's both the story of these uh, pioneering underpaid civil servants trying to figure out how to catch killers, but also the stories of the poisons themselves. And that was really exciting for me and also really hard to write. So, Yeah, we, we had discussed how it was sort of episodic in terms of, of the, po like each poison was sort of like, you, like a set piece that you drew the narrative of the, of the two main characters. Um, I have nominal aphasia, so the names have just completely gone out of my head, but the the, the medical- Both Norris and Alexander Gettler, right? Right, yeah. right. Nor how Norris and Gettler were, you know, you, you gave their information, but it was really like in, you know, relation to the poisons that they were researching. And one of the things that we were talking about was how uh, alcohol doesn't really have its own set chapter. It's just kind of like the through line that you take all the way from the beginning and the end of the book. Because you talked about prohibition and mm -hmm. we were sort of relating that to modern life and like the drug epidemic now. And so I was curious, what, what made you bring wood alcohol as the one that you carried through as the, the, the through line that, that carried throughout the book? That's a great question. So when I started thinking about how am I going to structure this book and, and, and I had found Alexander Gettler and Charles Norris with great difficulty because there just weren't any books about them. They had kind of disappeared, right? I went to the archives of the city municipal archives of New York and did all this sort of forensic digging to find them. And I knew I was going to use them as kind of, you know, the narrative spine, these two crusading scientists learning how to catch killers. And I knew I wanted these poisons as characters. So then I was doing a lot of work saying, well, what are the important poisons of this period? And also, as I moved the story forward, when does each poison get its showcase moment? And one of the things you'll notice in the book is that there's not a chapter about strychnine, which I was absolutely positive I was going to write about. I had gotten a book about strychnine. I love, strychnine's a great homicidal poison, but there was never a moment in the Norris Gettler story in which strychnine really played a part. And so I painfully left it out. But wood alcohol or methanol was the defining poison of most of the time that I was writing. I mean, my story starts in 1918. 
Charles Norris has just come in and sh as chief medical examiner as a result of a whole lot of horrible forensic scandals, brings in Alexander Gettler. Prohibition is bubbling up and they immediately, because Gettler was an absolutely stunningly brilliant chemist, started thinking this is going to be bad. They knew that there were always like some people who made their home brews and killed themselves accidentally because of wood alcohol or methyl alcohol. And you see them even before prohibition goes into place doing an early warning, this is gonna be really dangerous. So I introduced the idea of wood alcohol very early in the book because as a kind of harbinger of what was going to come. And, and when you look at the prohibition, the, the 1920s are a fabulous decade. It's a really anarchistic point in American history. A major constitutional amendment has passed. The majority of the country is rebelling against it. Illegal speakeasies and illegal distribution of alcohol and theft of alcohol and making of alcohol, you know, is flourishing wildly. So it's this insanely amazing criminal period, but also this period where you could do almost anything without, I mean, you know, it's a really fizzy kind of period. And it becomes increasingly dangerous, partly due to government policies, where the government recognizes that wood alcohol is, they want to try to use it as a chemical a deterrent to drinking. And they end up poisoning thousands of Americans. And Norris and Gettler were real leaders in the pushback against that. And so I wanted, as a, this is before I'd started writing the book, I started realizing that that was going to be one of the crescendo po points. And when I was doing the research, I was shocked and horrified to realize the government policies on poisoning American citizens. When I first started seeing the newspaper articles, because I did a lot of work in historical newspapers, I'm like, this can't be right, because I've never heard of this. I mean, I literally was like, no, 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 no. And I had to go and find more and more and more articles and really get into the government recipes for poisoning before I knew that that was right. And so that continues through prohibition, which really doesn't end until 1933. And that's the majority of the story. So people are continually dying of different kinds of poisonous alcohol during this period. And I wanted people to see prohibition for what it was. It wasn't just, you know, the Ritz Fitzgerald like Scott and Zelda dancing on tables and schmoozing with their bootleggers and getting the good stuff. It was all the social justice effects of this particular policy. And, and that social justice is important to me. And, and I wanted people to be fascinated by it, but I also really wanted them to see I, that a moral crusade, which prohibition is, is is a dangerous thing. The people who who feel that they're on the moral high ground and that the ends justify the means are dangerous to the rest of us. Then I did one chapter on plain old the alcohol we drink ethanol um, because it was really fascinating to me that Alexander Gettler was the first person in the world to figure out drunk driving and the way he had to do it at a period when alcohol was illegal and this complicated machinery of it. Some of the chemistry of that, the way you habituate to it. And if you drink regularly, you have to drink more to get the buzz. And I found that that's my chem inner chemistry geek coming out. But I love the kind of how does this work and how did we figure out how it worked and how do we best 
protect ourselves from this particular risk. And so all of you'll see all of that kind of through the alcohol, with alcohol being the defining poison of this period. There are famous homicidal poisons in my book, and there are famous occupational health poisons in my book. But this really was a period defined by alcohol. And one of the things you talked about in your answer about the social justice aspects of it, and you had written like about the number of babies that were in the morgue. And then there was another line about how they were found on the street, which led me to the, the, you know, thinking about just how many babies were abandoned to death in an age prior to abortion being legal when there was no contraceptives that were, you know, reliable. And, 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 you know, like if something piques my interest, I have to stop and then go research that to try to get an idea of that. And then just other little things, like we just all went through a pandemic and there was a line in your book where it was like you said, I think you called it an unguarded sneeze or some, an unguarded mm-hmm. cough was like a misdemeanor. I'm like, Oh, we need to bring that back. Cover your mouth. <laughs> or go to jail like and and so I kept finding all these sort of parallels to modern life of thinking about how you know like people say oh you can't you can't require me to wear a mask or it's like oh but in it used to be you would in the Spanish pandemic if you went around coughing with your mouth uncovered it was a fine you know so exactly right so I, I did, I love the sort of like parallels that I was finding and the things that made me think of, of of how much society has changed for the good and for the ill in terms of what we think we have as rights versus what we have as rights and then taking away those rights or how are we going to go back to how many, you know, infanticides are we going to, are we going to be dealing with if certain legislatures overturned? So it's, it was really interesting at the time I was reading this book with everything that was sort of happening in in the world that was like wow it's it's a real kind of if you think about it it's a, it's an eye-opening kind of a of a thing that is a really smart point and the other thing that really occurred to me when i was working on this book and i and i should say that when i started in newspapers i was a police and court reporter right so deeply embedded in the criminal justice system that probably also influences some of the way i tell the story But this book also really made me think about something else that I think is true today. And that is, it's just as important to prove innocence as to prove guilt. A a good criminal justice system doesn't, and we see this all the time where prosecutors today are so, you know, they want to win the case, they'll suppress evidence and, and innocent people go to jail. And so a couple of the cases that I really focus on in the book about are about people who are accused and who are not guilty. And, and, and I'm really trying to say to people, but this is the way it's, this is the way the system is supposed to work. This impartial system dedicated to justice. I mean, I don't think any of us believes that, you know, American justice is impartial <laughs> in all Not cases. Not unless you've got your head in the sand. Like, That's exactly yeah. right. But I, I liked that part of it. And that really stood out for me with a couple of the cases too, you know, standing up for the innocent as well as taking on the guilty. One of the things um, that my co-host and one of my co-hosts and I, we were talking about that really disturbed us about the book is uh, discussing that uh, how uh, Gettler did a lot of his experimentation on dogs. And we were, we were basically making the, like, we're terrible humans because we're sitting here reading about the murders and that doesn't bother us at all. But <laughs> he experiments on dogs and both of us being, you know, huge dog people, we were like, 
And uh, I know that you actually won a Pulitzer for your um, research into uh, uh, primate. That's right, primate research. That's right. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, how did that inform you in terms of, I mean, we both agree. We understand that there has to be research for medical purposes and, you know, not for cosmetics because we can all be ugly without killing the bunnies. You know, that's fine. Um, But um, how did how did that research? I was really curious as to how that research impacted your opinions on on animal experimentation and how it influenced you. Sure. So when Geller was experimenting on dogs, you know, there there was no animal welfare regulations in the country. There were no guidelines on how to, which is always kind of horrible to think about. I, I mean, we didn't pass the Animal Welfare Act until the 1960s over the objection of the research community. And I will say that one, just to go into my geeky animal research mode for a minute, the Animal Welfare Act puts USDA in, in chart of inspections of medical research labs. And Congress deliberately left the National Institutes of Health off because NIH had pushed so hard against any animal safety or welfare regulations. They're just like, you're completely not trustworthy. So one of the things you start to realize when you do animal research is, you know, there's a lot of resistance to change by scientists. And the things we have now, we have institutional review boards where a scientist, if they're going to do a, a very cruel experiment, has it has to go through a review board and they have to justify it. That didn't exist then. So, you know, I want to say first that we've moved a long way forward since then. I think back in Gettler's time, there was there were anti-vivisection societies, people who were really pushing back on this. But for the most part, I don't think scientists had been brought up in the culture of even questioning doing animal research. I mean, I want to put him in there just for a minute as the man of a per- his period. And I think that the fact that we do question today and we do push back uh, says that we've come forward not far enough. And, and so the the font, other thing I want to say about that is, you know, I spent a good 10 years or so doing behavioral biology and animal research and looking at some of these issues. And it's really discouraging to me that we haven't moved. I, I mean, I'm encouraged that we've moved forward since Alexander Gettler's times. We, we need to see these as ethical decisions. It's discouraging to me that my series, which is now almost 30 years ago, is 1994, we haven't really changed that much since then. There's still huge resistance by scientists to to listening to animal activists. There's still a great deal of secrecy surrounding lab research so that people can't really see what it is. I mean, one of the things with the series I did for the bee is I got took me a while, but I got really great access, you know, watch surgeries, went all kinds of monkey surgeries and went into all kinds of laboratories. And I wanted people to see what it was. And people have said to me that that series couldn't even be done today, that labs are even more secretive than they were then. And yet, how do we culturally change a system we can't see that's hidden from us? I really mind about that. I I think that you're right that at this point, we don't always have good alternatives to animal research. 
um, the COVID vaccines, which I am grateful to have, were developed in monkeys um, largely. And there was a huge um, increase in monkey research when they were working on those vaccines. They've saved countless lives for people who you know, were well-informed and smart enough to get the vaccines, right? But, and, and I would never, and there, but there wasn't a good alternative because we haven't developed those good alternatives. So I want to say what I feel very strongly, which is that impetus is on the research community to say, yes, right now we have to use animals for human research to, to work out human, human medical problems. But we could change that. We could reduce it. We should all be united in saying, let's only use animals when we have to. Ethically, that's not our best move. Ethically, if we're smart enough to figure out other ways, and, and it's frustrating to me this is different from the book, but I really believe that that's something that we should push the research community to do. Let's change these habits that date back to Alexander Geller more than 100 years ago. Surely in 100 years, we can figure out other ways to do this. And so that really matters to me. And I keep saying that. And, and lots of people keep saying that to very little effect, but it's true. It's sort of the same thing with any kind of, of system that's been in motion for so long. The resistance to change just because it's the known, it's the familiar, it's the comfortable way of doing it. It's very, very hard and, and to get people to recognize that there, there could be a way that's just as good. The only thing that's keeping us from exploring those avenues is habit and tradition from everything, from the gas crisis to, you know, to everything, just because we've always done it this way doesn't necessarily mean that that's a reason to keep doing it that way. That's exactly right. And, you know, there's just so much mistrust between scientists and animal activists. And when I was working on my series, I was trying to say, well, there's good points on both sides, which I still believe. But, you know, first they have to actually come to some kind of demilitarized zone or something and hash some of this out. Oh, and I want to tell you something about the chemistry part of this really quickly, which is one of the most interesting things to me about Poisoner's Handbook is that it's now a widely used textbook in high school chemistry classes. And they use it to say to, you know, young chemistry students, chemistry's cool. Look at all these cool, creepy things about chemistry. And I've actually done countless Zoom meetings with high school chemistry classes around the country. Then I went out and talked at the annual meeting of the Chemistry Teachers of America, right? And I love that part of this book. I love the part where it says to people who are, because we teach science so badly. And, you know, a lot of people, by the time they get out of high school, are just like, ooh, back off chemistry, right? So I love these really innovative, excited chemistry teachers who are using all these different ways to say to their students, you know, this is a really cool science. It'll help you navigate the world around it. Here's one way to see how cool it is. And and to me, that's one of the things I like best about this book. I mean, I like that it's a good story of murder and mystery and, and people who make a difference and all of the other parts of it. But I love that it's been used to make people think, oh, maybe chemistry is not as bad as I think. 
Well, and it's also, there is something to it in the pure ideology of uh, Norris and how, like you kind of said, like you alluded to this earlier, where how now the system is a little bit rigged in favor of the finding the presumption of guilt as opposed to innocence and how science, when it's pure and it's just done for the proper it doesn't matter what the result is. The result is the result. You know, the answer is the answer. Let's not try to skew it this way or skew it that way. Let's not try to manipulate the numbers to give us the result we want. Let's just do the thing and see what result we get. Science in its pure form is like my favorite, you know, like I, I love the idea of science. I don't particularly love how often science or statistics or data is misused it's misapplied agreed Agreed. in the wrong hands a lot of times agreed and the more we understand science the least less less it's we're a lot harder to fool if we can understand some of the working principles and i uh, since Poisoner's Handbook, I've written a lot about poisonous things. And I would say to people, like, say, is this dangerous? I'd say, well, just apply your common sense filter to whether you think it's dangerous or not. And then I would realize that people hadn't come out of their education system with enough information about how these things work to apply that filter. So in my crusading moments, I'm like, let me just show you how this works so that you can go, eh, right? Or yeah, I'm going to be careful with this one, right? Yeah, I was a teacher from high school for many years. And and my main thing was, I don't care if my students come out knowing what the thematic element of The Great Gatsby is. I want them to be able to analyze The Great Gatsby Mm -hmm. for themselves, like to look at it and come up with your own conclusion. Don't just pair it back to me what you think I want to hear. Because maybe you know, you're going to tell me something I've never thought of. And, you know, like if you can demonstrate the evidence to it, but it is amazing to me. Like I, cause I was a special ed teacher. So I, I actually, I taught like a bunch oh, of different cool. subjects and, but it's amazing to me, like that critical thinking is not taught in school anymore. You're taught to teach to the test. You're taught to, you know, generate canned response kind of, of thinking. And it's, 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 it does us a disservice as a society, I think, to not have that. hundred percent agreed. So I bet you were a good teacher too. <laughs> I mean, you can burn out. I was a university professor at Wisconsin. And after a while I was like, okay, right. I'll be honest, I love the teaching aspect, the dealing with the parents and the bureaucracy and the red tape and all of that. That was agreed to me. Yeah. Agreed. Like I, one of the other things in terms of uh, that we were talking about in the book that came up a lot was there was sort of like a rich and poor divide that was very well illustrated going back again to kind of like the social justice things and you had alluded to that with the wood alcohol where the rich the richest people weren't really being affected by this governmental poisoning um, that that was happening because they had the money and the means to to stay you know to to get cleaner sources which is happening today with you know a lot of the drug problems and prohibition that we're currently experiencing where it's the the poorest of the poor who kind of suffer from the regulations and whatever and we thought that was a really interesting thing that was sort of brought up in the book to some degree as well where it was sort of the rich don't suffer as much from these kinds of actions as the poor do my co-host john kind of brought up how that was really well illustrated in your book the the poorest were the ones who always suffer the most when it came to these sort of governmental regulations that's a really excellent point. And, and, and that is also, also one of the things that you, you see throughout the book and prohibition and the rules of prohibition 
really illustrate that well because you have this, you know, ban on illegal on commerce and alcohol, and immediately everyone starts disobeying the the laws, as I mentioned. But if you have money, then you can get. There, you know, there are rum runners, as they were called, who are bringing in bootleg whiskey from Canada or from Cuba or from other places. And it's really expensive, but you can afford to get that. Or, you know, my example of the Fitzgerald, Scott and Zelda, when they partied, their bootleggers came to the party and no bootlegger is going to bring poisonous stuff, right? And and the bootleggers wanted to come because they could mingle with, you know, high society. And so these guys both could afford the good stuff or they, you know, could bring in people who would make sure that they weren't getting the bad stuff. And, and, and I realized that when I had thought about, you know, the wild, crazy days of prohibition and everything... That was the image that I had had, and I wanted to debunk it some. So if you look at the idea that now you can't get access, like you used to be able to go down to wherever and get, you know, the corner drugstore and get Jamaican ginger or the bar and get a cheap five cent glass of beer as it would have been in that time, all of those things, all of that's taken away from you. And you still have no money, but you certainly don't have any money to get the really good bootleg stuff. So you saw people drinking these really terrible things. They were terrible for them. And I remember when I think one of the things I also referenced, people drank um, Sterno. There was a cocktail that was made of kerosene and water called smoke because it became this gray, cloudy liquid. And literally they would come out in the morning and take the dead bodies off the street. And so people just lower levels of income just could not get access to trustworthy liquor. I mean, sometimes they got it, depending on who was distilling what at the time, or whether the, you know, criminal gangs like the Capones that were stealing industrial alcohol could clean it up enough. But for the most part, they were drinking really bad things. And most of the people who died and most of the people who went blind were poor. And Charles Norris, when he wrote one of my favorite things he ever wrote, our national essay in extermination. He really looked at that issue. You know, this is on the backs of people who have no money. And so, and and meanwhile, you have like Herbert Hoover going over to the French embassy, which is not American soil and drinking fine French wines, and yet out there arguing for prohibition, right? You get this incredible level of hypocrisy also at the wealthy, among the wealthy. And and one of the things when you are angling for change is, you know, you're recognizing this is a bad decision as someone in power has to really feel like they're being harmed. And that was literally a point that was made in our podcast was no change ever comes until the wealthiest among us are the ones being affected on an equal basis to the poor. Because no matter what the law is, the poor are going to suffer a disproportionate amount because the wealthy have, even in the criminal justice system, I mean, if you can afford great lawyers, you're probably not going to jail. You know, if you're smart enough to sit there, assert your rights and keep your mouth closed, there has to be an overwhelming amount of evidence against you. For, to be wealthy and to go to jail because they can afford to just bury a prosecutor in motion after motion after motion. And and it, it becomes 
too cost effective depending upon the circumstances to to fight it or that's you know other not like murder or anything but even then you know how many rich people get away with murder simply because they can afford better attorneys than the poor people can the famous oj simpson case being an example of that or yeah i can think of a lot of others no that's exactly right and so when the 33rd amendment was finally passed it was passed because people recognized that the prohibition was doing harm to American business. They, they weren't worried about, you know, the Bowery bums who died on the street. That was never going to be a driver for change, sadly. It should have been, yeah. right? At some level, if you're going to say every person's life mattered, when they're stacking up so many bodies that they have to bury them in mass graves, that, that should have been the driver for change, but it wasn't. It was the fact that the wealthy had had enough of what it was costing them. And 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 the same really with radium, I discovered. You know, I did a chapter on radium and the Watchdale painters and the radium girls and, you know, their successful lawsuit uh, to, that forced the U.S. Radium Corporation to acknowledge that radium was a poison. But the really effective regulations uh, on radioactive materials didn't happen until rich people started getting harmed. So you see that pattern over and over. And it's, and again, like I said, as I was reading this book, it was so interesting to me because it's like, okay, yeah, it happened a hundred years ago, but it's all happening right now. Like how many factories are poisoning workers? We all know it's occurring, but you know, everybody wants their cheap shoes from, you know, sweatshop horrible conditions everybody wants you know the the hypocrisy of hoover drinking at the french embassy it's not like our politicians are any different now they go out and they say one thing to their constituents and behind closed doors they're doing the exact opposite and it's it, it was a really interesting read just to like parallel modern life to what was happening 100 years ago and how far we've come but also how far we have not come because we don't seem to learn our lessons ever do we And this is such a smart conversation, I want to say to you, because I mean, I talk about this book and usually I'm all focused on homicide. And so (laughs) to get into these wonderful, important, enduring social justice issues, I'm so excited about it because they matter. And we, you know, and and it's, you know, it's kind of a thing where with history, you say, well, how do we get where we are? Well, guess what? We have deep roots on these kinds of attitudes and problems and systemic failures. That doesn't mean we can't change them, but we have to acknowledge how hard they are to change because look how enduring they are. What is the next book that you have in the pipeline for us? So I am writing a book about female poisoners and um, it really came about, I was talking to a crew, crew, I can't say that true crime writer, you may know Dean Jobs, who had a book out. I interviewed him. That was yeah. the first book we did. We did uh, his uh, cream book. The Neil Cream book. And mm-hmm. so he and I, when he was on his virtual book tour, he had an event at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Connecticut. And he asked me if I would come, you know, Deborah Queen of Poisons, come and talk about Neil's cream and strychnine and so we're talking about neil cream famous strychnine poisoner and somehow we veer off into harvey holly crippen who is was eric larson wrote about him in thunderstruck and none and and all at once i'm like you know this is just morally wrong 
because everyone always makes this huge deal about male serial killers, but women are just as good. They're just as bad. There's these amazing female serial killers out there that no one ever talks about. And I, as a woman, resent that. And so I, so I went to my agent. She went to my editor on Poisoner's Handbook and my editor said yes. And so I'm now, I've been working on it now for about six months. So I went to the house of one of the serial poisoners in my book and had to have a, a deep internal argument. I met a friend there uh, about breaking into the basement of the house. Right? <laughs> I finally, we're at this house, which is now a triplex and there's no one there. And it's all locked up and quiet and in this big old yard. But there's a storm cellar. I mean, uh, right. So, I mean, it's research. You have to. It was research. I'm like, where does this lead? And so we open these metal doors, right? And the house, that house was built in the 1870s. And so there's this, you know, old stone steps leading down to a kind of creaky looking wooden door. And we can see that it's not bolted. The bolt is <laughs> <laughs> I so, fell in, officer. I swear it was wide yeah. open and I just I finally fell had in. to say to myself, I do not want to start this book by being arrested for trespassing in the basement of a serial killer. Right. But I had a moment. It's the closest I've ever come to really becoming a criminal myself when I was just like, oh, if I could just take one little peek into this serial killer's basement. But I'm excited about the book. I have all kinds of different, really cool poisoners and with different stories and you know I'm really enjoying researching it I suppose that makes me sound super creepy you're you're on the right podcast for this because our (laughs) our main our main umbrella podcast is literally devoted to a serial killing uh the Jack the Ripper yeah so can you tell us who um, a couple of the the female poisoners that you uh, that you're writing about just to give us a little tantalizing taste of what's to come? Sure. So let me think of one that I, I find particularly interesting. So, well, the woman whose basement I almost went into uh, is Amy Archer Gilligan. Do you know her? Don't know her. See, my exact point, I really, so Amy Archer Gilligan was an arsenic murderess in Windsor, Connecticut. She killed, they think about 40 people over, see, and she ran this boarding house and she just would point, and she used arsenic. She was actually the inspiration for Arsenic and All Lace. And the guy who wrote Arsenic and All Lace went to Windsor, Connecticut and went to the Historical Society and Researcher in the course of working on the play. And I did see something that said that she would put the arsenic in elderberry wine. She didn't use the same um, formula that they use in arsenic all lace, you know, arsenic, a pinch of strychnine and a couple drops of cyanide, I think. But so she was pure arsenic. And and what actually happened with her, I'm, I'm still trying, so I'm gonna back this up for a minute. When I started the book, my, what my editor said to me is, yes, you can tell all these different stories, but it's not serial killer porn. We're raising these different murderesses to illustrate different points. So I want to use Amy Archer Gilligan 
to make the point that, uh, you know, we really dismiss older women as being fluffy and harmless. I mean, she was like this sweet little old lady and her daughter played the organ at the church and people would mysteriously die and she'd send flowers to their funerals. And, and it finally was just that a newspaper reporter uh, started looking at death certificates and went, the cops never figured it out until the newspaper took it on. But I really want to look at her, for instance, through that lens of why we dismiss older women as being dangerous. And then I have another murderess that I want to do. Um, I, I sort of subtitle, you know, I made up chapter titles, which may or may not live. But one of them is called The Poisoner's Cookbook. And so I'm just looking at, well, what do you put the poison in? And what covers up? That's a tricky chapter because I'm not trying to give people recipes for murder. So I and and everyone I write about got caught, right? That's the other thing. We wouldn't be able to tell these stories if these people hadn't gotten caught. But it's that. But Amy, Amy is a good example of the kind of approach I'm taking. Someone who's really underestimated, who killed a whole lot of people before she got caught. And and the other part of it was dismissed because she was a woman especially an older woman. So it really makes a point on how we see women. And I see that in a lot of the serial killer, I've been reading uh, books about female serial killers, and this consistently comes up. People accept male serial killers. It's like part of the male persona. Uh, You know, for a woman to be a serial killer violates all the norms of female, the nurturing, loving, I'll take care of you norms of female behavior. Which is all just propaganda. It's all (laughs) just, it's imposed. It's a societal expectation that's imposed upon women to be that, as opposed to recognizing women are as unique and as, that's right just disturbed and dangerous as men can be we're just not as physically overpowering as men and that i love that you're doing that because i actually made that exact same point in my in my neighborhood that i used to live in they were passing a really dumb rule that i thought was dangerous and they were like oh you know these are all your neighbors you should trust them i'm like you don't know that the little old lady living next door to you could be a hitman for the mafia i'm like you don't know that's exactly right yeah, and and it's interesting to me how often that that idea of you know women in general, but especially the older they get, it's like this mystique status that's bestowed upon them. That's exactly right. And then actually, when you look at female serial killers, women kill a lot longer, and they kill when they're a lot older than men do. So I, you know, when I describe it to people, I say I'm writing a female empowerment book about female poisoners, and that's kind of how I see it. You Excellent. Know, I want to read just, that. <laughs> I think it's, I'm ex- I, like I said, as you can tell, I'm really excited about it, right? I'm actually really, that sounds, honestly, that's, I can't wait to read about all these murderous women, but it's but, true. Like I'm t- like the narrative around women. I mean, just in this, this being a woman in a, in a slightly um, not publicly friendly kind of, of a podcast, I get you know, hate mail all the time. Because like, if an author comes on, and I'm very harsh with them, I'm like, you're lying, you're making this up. This is BS. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe how rude, you know, she is. And it's like, and everybody's like, yeah, they wouldn't say that if you were a man, if you were a man challenging it, it would be totally fine. But because you're a woman saying this is this, this and this, it's like, we have to be sweet and demure and say, now, darling, I don't know if you've considered this, but your facts are not exactly factual, instead of just going, yeah, you're straight up lying. 
crying. Right. Like, you know, right. you, you have right. to tailor your response so as not to get called out. And, and I love that you're writing a book about female empowerment through murder. <laughs> I believe a lot of those women were driven to it. No. Yeah. I mean, the motives are really interesting. I'm excited about it. And I'm, I'm excited to read it. We've done like, for some reason, like we keep running into like poisoning cases. I'm like, okay, the next book has to be like a straight up bloody homicide. Cause like we keep <laughs> doing poisoners, but we had talked about it cause we did cream and then we did um, a, a female poisoner uh, who poisoned in England. Um, and one of the things that we, I was talking about in that book is it's like, what was the motive, you know, because she got away with it because again, you know, woman, so, yeah. Little- little helpless woman. Right? Yeah. And, it, and it's like, what was the motive? And sometimes it's just like, is it just psychopathy? Is it just, you know, I, I can do it. So why not? Which we wouldn't argue that if it were a man, that could just be motive enough is they, they were a psychopath kind of a thing. Uh, but I, I, I'm actually really looking forward to this book. This year. Okay. What, what is the tentative due date? Uh, it's due in 2024. So you know, okay. I got a little bit of time, which is good because I want, I want to like travel to different places and I'm actually going to request, I mean, if I were their lawyers, but there's a couple of them who are more recent and I'm going to contact their lawyers and see if they'd let me do jailhouse interviews. Cause I think that'd be really cool. So it's going to take me a little while to put it together, but I'm right at the point where I've done enough research that I know the territory and I have a plan. Right. That is because we were actually talking about how you don't really hear about murders by poisoning nowadays. And we had talked about how and, and you know, one of my co-workers was like, well, you know, the legislation, the restrictions, it's harder to get poison. And you used to just be able. I'm like, oh, well, that's an argument for gun control, then, isn't it? If legislation <laughs> yeah. worked to really reduce the poisoning, yeah. you know, and I'm I'm a southerner. I'm a redneck. You know, I have guns. It's not like I'm anti, anti, anti gun, but. Like if we can stop a few mass poisonings by re- regulating the poison, then it seems like we could stop a few mass shootings. That's a really by, good point. By regulating yeah. guns. Yeah. But people don't listen to me. When I'm dictator of the world, everything will be way better. I'll vote for you as dictator. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And yeah. this has been really fun. Thank you. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I love this conversation. It was super fun. I'm so glad you agreed to this. And I do want to thank you for, uh, you know, working with our schedule through our, uh, our scheduling problems that we had with this one. So I really appreciate you coming on. I'm happy to do it and and, uh, look forward to talking to you again. All right. 2024. I'll be calling you up. (laughs) (laughs) Take care. All right. Bye-bye. This concludes this episode of Off the Shelf, the Poisoner's Handbook by Deborah Blum. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope to see you back here in the fall when we will be discussing more true crime books. Until then, thanks for listening. Sorry. I'll cut this part out. John Reese. That's going to be me through most of it.
Okay, right. I have to yeah, I, put I, in I, a even, caveat that I have one recovering COVID and one possible COVID presumptive currently on the show. Yeah. So don't expect a lot of brain cells to be firing. My brain cells are fine, it's my lungs that aren't. <laughs> um, 